out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the artist, musician and dancer and writer. Probably lots more as well. It is the one and only Dorothy Max Pryor, who has just written a book and it's just come out at the end of 2022. It's titled 69 Exhibition Road. Subtitle 12 True Life Tales from the Fag End of Punk porn and performance this has come out on strange attractor press available from all good bookshops and also probably online anyway this is the interview so after several minutes of casual but interesting chat we get down to that exciting subject that was really the reason for the book (laughs) the title the title that's it 69 exhibition road and the time frame that we're speaking about anyway dorothy's going to explain everything dorothy it's over to you Right. So the title um, comes from the address that I lived at between 1976 and 1982. So it was a kind of seven year cycle. 69 Exhibition Road, for people that don't know London so well, is um, it's right opposite the Science Museum on that great big road that goes up to the Albert Hall and up to the up to Hyde Park from South Kensington Station. And that's it's kind of really, really posh these days, uh, but it was it was um, a really rundown house, and like the 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 thing that's hard to or sometimes hard to explain to people who are much younger than me. I mean, I'm in my late sixties now. Is that all of these areas like South Kensington and Notting Hill Gate uh, were actually really cheap and really rundown, and there was a lot of houses like our one that was basically it's not a squat. We were paying rent, but it was really kind of decrepit. You know, it had uh, peeling paint on the door, and um, and inside there were all these kind of tarnished mirrors and old bell pulls that didn't work, and um, you know, lots of rickety flights of stairs. So that's where I lived. I lived in three different rooms over that period of time and so that's why the book ended up being called that because the book is a memoir of just that block of time actually got there's a set sheet there's one story that's set in 1975 that I um did kind of have I I had a kind of conversation myself about whether to include it it's the story that's called picture this which is um the sort of second the, the the book is 12 true life tales from the fag end of punk Porn and performance, or maybe it's porn, punk, performance, can't remember which way around it went now. I've got it in front of me. I'll look. Um, it is <laughs> Exhibition Road, 12 True Life Tales from the Fag End of Punk, Porn and Performance. There you go. I've got the title of my own book right. Yes. Um, so that's it, it, that, That's the kind of construction of the book. It's 12 stories that were originally intended as standalone stories, although there is... Um, you know that it 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 also works as one whole linear narrative, but it's not hundred percent chronological. It's kind of the some this kind of overlap because the stories are sort of themed. Yes, I can yeah. imagine. I mean, it was an amazing story, and so many characters within it that that were boggling and so much creativity and and bizarreness as well. And it's interesting you talk about that kind of condition of you living where you lived because I remember. Going, moving into Norwich and and this kind of place was, I mean, you know, it was really cheap and we never had hot water or electric, um, we did have electricity, but no central heat and we sat around in big boots and big coats and scarves during the winter months just trying to keep warm and 
the sink was just full of old sort of things to be clean, like cups and mugs and stuff like that. So, um, yes, it was it was kind of a grim period. But you you were obviously there in the mid 70s. So just uh, I mean, a little bit about your background, because that's kind of quite a fascinating story as well. So what was your kind of early childhood like at this stage? Um, my childhood was South London, working class. Although as I got into my teens, I think we could say working class made good. Um, you know, as my family kind of went up in the world, still very working class. But um, my dad went from being a car mechanic to being coach works manager of South London Motors. I know. So so that's what I mean by working class made good. You know, it's like when you kind of haul yourself up in up in the world. Yes. So, you know, we had we had hostess trolleys and <laughs> <laughs> And a bar in the front room and things like that, you know, a teak, a teak, uh, a teak music centre for his records that, of course, I was not allowed to touch without his permission. So, um, but it was through my dad that I got introduced to things like sort of jazz and, um, well, easy listening jazz. I mean, he loved things like Ella Fitzgerald and Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, all of that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that's that's my kind of my teens, fairly comfortable working class. Yeah. Yes, by God. So what, um, because you just slightly froze there, but then, because on that little moment, it says it was a bit unstable. But then, so when you got to 16, 18, did you go to university at that stage or college? I went to teach training college, which is which is um, very typical of uh, a working class background. You know, it was, it was something that, that obviously, my, I mean, both of my parents left school at 13 and 14. Uh, my mum was a, a waitress when she was in, in her youth and then a dinner lady when the, as I was growing up. So so for them, any 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 kind of higher education was something to be very much looked up to. And they they were they were desperate for me to be a teacher. I mean, I, I could have gone to drama school, but um, that was probably what I most wanted to do. And I had uh, the possibility of going to Guildhall School of Music and Drama, I did all my kind of grades and entrance exams and things but but you know that would have been that would have cost money so that's the difference the the teacher training was um not only did you not pay fees which is quite extraordinary now to think of but you also got got if you if you were you know if you weren't from a a moneyed background you actually got paid to go I mean you got you got maintenance grants and things like that so I went to teach training college although I dropped out halfway through um you know to to live this um <laughs> alternative life it, it's one it's a one amazing it is an amazing alternative light and the uh life and the characters you meet are kind of extraordinary aren't they you know there's the whole adam and marco and 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 crew and it just you know you you sort of you're part of rima rima then you're into the weekend swingers and then also you you are a, um, a stripper as well which is quite extraordinary isn't it so you you really sort of well, typical typical convent school girl you could say <laughs> <laughs> i was in catholic in catholic education until i was 19 20 and then just just went completely wild right so I, was quite a, I was a late developer you could say and then then you know just went completely completely off the road <laughs> so when you moved when you moved into Exhibition um, Road, I think that was yeah. the one, isn't it? Did you did you move in with a group of people, or were they already living uh, there? No, no, they were the. Um, it was just divided up into bedsits. So um, I I originally moved in. Well, I was originally just sweep, sleeping on the floor of a friend called Monica, German Monica. 
Um, so that was my introduction to the house. And then when she got fed up with me sleeping on her floor, she persuaded the housekeeper to find me a little room. So I lived in a really, really tiny room in the basement that had mice and, you know, other things. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very typical of, of those sort of like very, very, very old houses um, at that time. Um, so that was room number two. And then room number three um, was was with Andy Warren, um, bass player in the original lineup of Adam and the Ants. Uh, and we, we moved into quite relatively luxurious surroundings of this big room on the top floor that had two big windows, you know, overlooking exhibition mode and a yes. little hooker in the corner. But, you know, still a shared, shared, still no water inside the room, you know, sort of still a shared shared bathroom and uh, but the bathroom did overlook Harrods which was very lovely my goodness that things had changed because it was quite nice because yes the chapter you have where you what's it picture this this is the one where you sort of introduce the London without you know electricity there's power cuts three-day weeks recession and it's funny because you also mentioned that Man United get relegated as well so I was like, <laughs> quite quite amazed that you threw that little reference point in as uh, alongside the IRA bonds as well and um well, for yeah. some people it was the most important you know the most devastating thing about the year that was the thing I think that's why I bunged it in because it was kind of almost you know people couldn't believe it anyway yeah it was that so that wasn't that 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 is 1975 so that's my kind of scene setting chapter um that that that's the one that I did hesitate about whether to include because it's not strictly within the confines of 69 exhibition road it's the year before but I ended up feeling it needed to be in there because it does give us paint paint the picture of 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 the London that we're talking about, and it and it's also um, it's also where I talk about my kind of portal into gay London through through meeting my friend Timmy, and you know my first kind of connections with some of the other people who who crop up later in the book. So that's how I ended up staying in. But yeah, it's it's quite well. Um, I, a year or two ago, I would have said it's pretty unbelievable this London of the 1970s. But um, sitting here in my house with <laughs> sitting here with no heating on, you know, and uh, and all the rest of it, I'm just 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 England seems to be hurtling down towards that same. We're gripped um, by it, aren't we? Yes, because the seventies there was a lot of kind of you know like I suppose it was going from Labour to Conservative until '79 with Thatcher, but. But uh, yeah. the, the amount of prime ministers recently has been quite amazing. And we've all lost the count of chancellors, haven't we? So they, that's kind of part of it, really. Because it was interesting, because I was listening to the Main Man uh, podcast, which had, um, you know, about Tony Tony DeFries and Angie Bowie and David Bowie, that that mm -hmm. world with um, people like um, Dana Gillespie. And that was interesting, because in the early 70s, there was a sort of a kind of the gay scene, the Sombrero Club, you know, that was where David met people like Freddie Beretti and the woman called Wendy that he referenced in that song about stealing clothes from Marks and Spencer. So, or Sparks. So, you, you know, that's kind of interesting, this kind of the, the gay scene in London. It, it's kind of brings such a lot of creativity to the party, so to speak, doesn't it? It does. And I, I um, was slightly later than that entering that scene. But for me, it was, you know, it was 1975. But yeah. Yeah, the sombrero or yours yours or mine as it's also known on um kensington high street that was that was still very much going strong yes at that time right through really until the early years. so what was um, your so yeah yeah the the 
Sorry, no, I was going to say, what was your kind of introduction to the sort of the more creative side of life from being a, a student teacher training to suddenly wanting to be part of the scene rather than just a, a kind of a sort of a slightly passive spectator? Well, I'd always been I'd always been a dancer. I'd done all sorts of different types of dance, but um, I I ended up joining the cockpit theatres dance workshop um and and then they had this um fabulous idea of putting together the dance group and the electronic music group and i found that at the time i found that all kind of quite terrifying the idea that we would be doing improvised movement to electronic music that would be composed in the moment yes. as opposed to doing you know a choreograph routine to a piece of music that already existed uh but but yeah so that that really was the first I suppose, you know, I'd done lots of creative things because I'd been to dance classes and I'd done lots of dance performances and and things like that. But um but yeah, this this that that was I suppose that was the beginning. It's also where I met um Timmy, who who became my um as I called him a minute ago, my kind of portal into gay London. So yeah, I, I think I see I see that moment of of going along to the cockpit theatre as as the the beginning of the change you know of the of the embracing the 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 other the idea of being something other than than what my you know kind of background and class and everything had had prepared me for had you been aware of people like the coquettes in san francisco and those kind of groups that had developed from um theater of the was it living light or something like that were you aware of that kind of scene or was it still because I remember thinking in those days it was difficult to find stuff because you couldn't just go to the internet and libraries were quite yeah. um yeah. tricky at times they don't they often have an amazing yeah. alternative scene did they but you found out to other people I mean I'm trying to think now I I I went to see Lindsay Kemp uh, and I'm trying to think why would I have done that but I suppose it must have been through David Bowie because I was a Bowie fan I, I, I'm just, uh, this is not a memory. This is a kind of construction of what I think must have happened. Uh, Cause I can't, I can't logically think of any other way that as a teenager, you know, in my, in my working class South London home, I would actually know about Lindsay Kemp. I don't think I would have known anyone who, who, who could have mentioned him and his work. But um, I think probably in an interview with David Bowie or, you know, something yes. he probably mentioned working with Lindsay Kemp and the, and the whole mime scene. And, and so I... Um, because I, yeah. I know, I know, I know. Listened to a Bowie interview recently, and he mentions seeing these performance artists. There was living, living theatre, and also bread, bread and uh, butter theatre company bread as well. Pu bread puppet, yeah. Puppet, God, that's the one. Is yeah. <laughs> butter? Yeah. Yes, yes, that was it. Because you, because yeah. you mentioned, because you start working with basically the members of Throbbing Gristle, don't you? At this, it's kind of seventy. Is it seventy? six you you start working with them or performing with them well I don't perform with them but 76 was the the um October 76 was the date of the of the throbbing uh the the company were, at the time were called come transmissions so that was Genesis Peorage and Cozy Funny Tootie and Sleazy and Chris who who then went on to be throbbing gristle so they put on an exhibition at the ICA where I was working at the time as a very very part-time occasional sort of Jill of all trades, you know, dog's body helper. Um, so we put on the prostitution exhibition in October 76. So that's where I met Jen and Cozy 
um, and became friends with them. And then sort of the collaborations came later down the line, but, um, you know, a year or so down the line, but, but at the time that's, that's, that was the first, the first contact. Yes. Cause I think around there in the book, you mentioned Bruce Lacey that we all got to love in yeah. East Anglia because he used to come to the East Anglian fairs because he actually lived in East Anglia performing various fertility rituals, mostly naked with a few feathers on jumping mm-hmm. and humping around and, and sort of firing arrows lit arrows into sort of targets and vaguely missing people at the same time health and safety wasn't a thing about those days oh no not at all I mean you know yeah the the ICA in that year the year that I worked there which which was throughout 1976 it was such an extraordinary place with so many things happening uh the director was a guy called Ted Little who'd come to it from the Birmingham Arts Lab and he he basically applied the whole arts lab kind of ethos to this major arts center in London so you you know you know about obviously about the about Beckenham David Bowie and the Beckenham yes. Arts Lab but there was so there were these arts labs all around the country um and and they basically you know handed space over to to artists to create whatever they wanted to do so yes. there'd be all sorts of kind of things like you know free festivals well we know about the famous one in in Beckenham but but there'd be there'd be all sorts of things going on so so Ted Little took this sort of ethos and applied it to um to a major arts venue in London so it, it was run like an arts lab so that yes there were things happening in every bit of the of the building there were exhibitions there were you know we we were allowed to use theatre late night to put gigs on so we put the clash on and you know subway sect and various other bands um the there was um great programming in the cinema various the bruce lacy thing was part of something that i helped put on with um with ted polhemus and that was the ethnographic film festival right so basically um, yeah, we had lots of kind of what you might call eth- ethnographic or autobiographical or, or um, cine verite, you know, f- films that that were in one way or another exploring the the borderline between reality and dream experience. Yes, because I seem to remember now doing an interview with Simon Loftus, who was one of the people who started the Barsham Fairs in '71. And I remember they finished in about 75, I think. And then he mentioned that they did a performance at the ICR, ICA at some time in that period. But um, I'd, frankly... Well, there were so many, so many fantastic companies, companies that, that like Lumiere and Sun and the People Show, uh, Crystal Theatre of the Saint from Bristol, another one that only a few of us remember. Um, and then this fantastic company called Hot Peaches from America. So I spend quite a bit of time talking about them in the book. Yes. they were, you know, post-Stonewall, they'd been involved with the Stonewall riots and they were a kind of um, LGBTQ+, plus, you know, gay, trans company. Uh, and, yeah, their whole, their whole approach, um, because they decided that what they would do was was pre- present their their political views but within a kind of cabaret setting so it was kind of agitprop cabaret which of course is not i mean brecht did that as well you know it's not it's not as if no one has done that before but you know the the whole um things like gay sweatshop 
in the UK were actually kind of quite, you know, the agitprop theatre that was going on in the UK was actually mostly quite kind of serious and sort of new writing based. But, um, yeah. Yes, it's amazing. I mean, it is an, it's such a dense book and there is so much in each chapter. I mean, because, you you know, you, you outline punk and then there's this kind of chapter, which is um, La 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 Lola, which has got the most amazing photograph of you, slightly just very skimpy with these kind of most awful looking, this slightly judgmental men leering at you quite naked. That's an extraordinary photograph, isn't it? It's quite amazing. Yeah, I'm waiting. Oh, that was taken at the Westminster Arms, which was right next to New Scotland Yard. And it was basically the New Scotland Yard pub. So I'm waiting for someone to tell, to point out someone and say, oh, yeah, they became like head of the Met, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I might, might, end up, might end up having to kind of um, take the photo out of future editions or something. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I'm sure they're all past, haven't they? Let's face it. It was 77 times. So there you go. I mean, was that kind of... Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was 21. So those a lot of those good blokes were well in their 40s I or mean, they, they've all got fags. They're drinking heavily. They're not going to have made it, are they? <laughs> You don't think they survived it? No, probably not. It would, have been, it would have been a heart attack and prostate cancer at least. So um, that's all good. But one thing that's really fascinating for various reasons is you you sort of then are part of this band, Rima Rima, aren't you? Which is quite, mm. which only lasts about 18 months, but has a phenomenal lineup of people. And to blow my mind, there's a there's a an uh, Italian Canadian who's just made a film of, of this band as well. Which, yeah. Yeah, which, which is, is quite extraordinary because there's no live footage of us. So um, that's a challenge for a filmmaker. But he's he's a real Rumorima fan and he's a 4AD fan. So our you know, record label 4AD, who have since become massive, but we were the first signings. They didn't even exist when, when we were signed to them. Um, yeah, and he's done an amazing job. It's well, a really amazing but what's kind of interesting in the book, because I, you know, I don't have complete envy, but I have slight envy because everybody is just so well connected and so artistic. And everybody you mention is like, are, are kind of well known, which you must think, wow, that's amazing. Because most of us don't have that kind of like, oh, all these amazing people. And and actually at the weekend, I have to confess, I thought, oh, Renegade Soundwave, that's an interesting band. I should get them on my show. And then I got Gary and he was like, oh, you're on Rima Rima, weren't you? And so he's he was part of it, who then tells me his life story and the um, renegade sound wave years. So there, there is so much, in, in, you know, connections and sort of woven tapestry. You get this, you get, you know, you get this kind of clusters of people, don't you, that 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 all then become either well-known or at least, you know, uh, known in a cultish yes. underground yeah, it's not that I mean, everybody. I mean, some people like Adam and Susie, of course, became really well known, but other people were just like Gary, like Renegade Soundwave, or or, or whatever. Yeah, they're sort of well known within certain circles. Yeah, but but then it's, it just seems to happen, doesn't it? I mean, it happened. It happened. It's obviously the whole sort of beatnik thing, or the sort of nineteen sixties London, where you suddenly had people who, you know, first of all, they're just like a bunch of people who are models and photographers and musicians and whatever and then suddenly they're all like world famous people so so yeah and, this kind of but it, it seems like the stars must have slightly lined up mustn't they because there was just like there wasn't like actually there's no point talking about that because it didn't really come to anything whereas this is there are so many things that did happen or someone was in this band and then they became part of that band and like you said adamant 
was extraordinary. I mean, you know, straight in at number one with his kind of latest mm-hmm. very chart by and sound. I mean, it was quite, yeah, I'm just I'm just flabbergasted how you managed to navigate so much in that five years emotionally as well, because it was it was quite intense, wasn't it? All the characters are quite extreme and quite um creative. Mm. Yes, no, it was full on. It's the the other thing I find odd now, you know, at this ripe old age is looking back and things that I thought were so far apart in time. I mean, we're talking about things that were kind of six months apart or something, but but as a 20-year-old, it just feels like a whole other you feel if you, you change change what you're doing and do something else, and then what you were doing six months earlier just feels like another century. But that's just the nature of how how time shifts and your perception of time shifts as you get older. Yes, yeah, I, yeah it, absolutely. Because I think we were only planning one week ahead in the old days, and anything beyond that was just it seemed crazy, didn't it? Kind of positively optimistic that you could even even have a calendar really at that stage in life. So, what was your experience like of Rima Rima at this? You know, kind of looking back at it at that mm. time. Well, the first thing to say again, and this is another kind of those funny time things, because actually it was only it was from the time that I was playing with 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 Andy Bid and Stuart who became became adamant in this band with no name that split into the ants and monochrome set so that was early 77 and rima rima formed in um early to mid 78 so it seemed like forever at the time i felt like i'd 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 not really got going with playing drums with anybody and that maybe maybe i needed to go off and do something else completely different instead and then this this ad came up um for a drummer and um, it just seemed to tick all the boxes. It said about no hi-hats and liking craft work and various other things that just were completely right. So so I phoned up and went to meet Marco and Gary. Uh, and then from there, went on to meet all the others. And they were already friends and they, they had didn't have a name for their band, but they had started to rehearse. Um, and that that became Rima Rima. Once once I joined, that was that was the last bit of the jigsaw puzzle, if you like. Before that, they were using a drum machine, and they thought that's the way they were going to go forward. Yes. Um, then they then they decided, um, partly because some of some of other people that they were that you know, if you like, some of some of people that are our peers, like um, humanly Cabaret Voltaire and, and and certain other people, you know, were, were choosing to use drum machines. So I think there was a certain kind of perverse desire from from the Rima Rima boys to actually uh, to actually get a drummer rather yes. than carry on a drum machine. Um, so they got a drummer that sounds like a drum machine. <laughs> <laughs> but also had a little bit of a, a nod towards Mo Tucker from, I guess. Yeah, it definitely. Would have I mean, Mo Tucker's big, a big... Um, heroine of mine and big influence and um as I mentioned in the book when in one of our we 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 did these all night rehearsal come um music writing sessions at somewhere called Halligan's which is on Holloway Road and we'd just go in from 11 o'clock at night until six or seven in the morning and just make music together which was fantastic but um on one of those kind of early occasions the song um called Fond Affections um we we were we were trying that out they were playing what they had so far and I just tried out a number of different drum rhythms and it's just like nothing felt right so in the end I just 
did the kind of kick drum, you know, just the bass bass drum, just a steady sort of heartbeat, and just shook a tambourine, and um, and that was perfect for the song. And I think that's the, um, and obviously they were very pleased with that, and it all seemed to work well. But but I think I think that was a kind of important factor that that I'm not not the sort of drummer that feels I have to play lots of drums. You know, uh, I I'm, I kind of just feel. I'm still like that. I still feel the same. I don't play drums anymore, but but you know, I still feel with music. I just often like things that have got a lot of space, you know, and are quite spare. Yes. And um, and 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 I mean, I mean, it's also also obviously, as you know, Rima Rima can also make an awful lot of noise when we wanted to and really fill up space. But it's just having that contrast, really, and just not feeling that you have to kind of always just get in there and you know just do make lot you know put in lots of drum patterns or whatever there's nothing wrong with just having a bit of tambourine so that's very much a, a motaka type thing <laughs> yeah absolutely and yeah i agree because because even though i have had a bit of a prog rock moment because of an older brother i do sort of feel that yeah. it's like god don't bore us get to the chorus sometimes don't you really with sort of um yes clever musicians but you kind of think i can't remember but it's very clever you know whereas some people just have that kind of classic riff hook and you just think what is it about it that there is kind of genius in something but yes it's interesting and also in the book because obviously at that point there's a lot of kind of um I suppose shock tactics and people pushing the boundaries and there was quite an interesting line you have or you know piece where you're talking about people dressing up as the Ku Klux Klan and sort of you know having quite offensive t-shirts and then you sort of say it's it all seemed a bit silly you know being sensational with no artistic integrity is kind of a bit oh, of... that was the Moors murder I was trying to think gosh when did I say that you're absolutely right that was the bit about the Moors murderers wasn't it when I was talking about Jane Suck who who I was supposedly forming a band with and then she went off and did this instead um yeah it's interesting and I I um I I find it quite interesting that I mean I don't know why why did why did they bother me you know and what they were doing bother me whereas you know Vivian Westwood are a year before doing the, the Cambridge rapist t-shirts or whatever, not bother me. And, mm. and, and Trump Bristle doing songs about Mary Bell or whatever. I don't know. It's just something to do with, with it's, it's something to do with, with, with what you feel about your kind of trust of the artist to be doing something for sound reasons. And for, and um, I'm not, you know, I don't know morally where, where that leaves me but but rightly or wrongly I feel somehow that I trusted Vivian Westwood and her Vivian and Malcolm's kind kind of integrity and in what they were doing with the clothing and I trusted Throbbing Gristle with their kind of in, with their integrity with with what they were doing with 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 the band with music and with the the images and the lyrics that a lot of people would have found offensive I kind of I kind of understood the rationale, I understood why they were doing it. And then the Morse murderers just seemed a little bit like just jumping on some sort of bandwagon. Yes. Me. It's a very fine line, <laughs> isn't it? Sometimes it's it's kind of because yeah, actually yeah, probably wouldn't make sense to a lot of people. But so that's why I just just have to, you know, stress that this is a purely subjective thing, you know, that for some reason, um, yeah, you know, one set of things that happened I felt all right about and then you know, other things just seem like, oh, no, please. <laughs> Did you feel when you were writing the book, because obviously, you know, like all those characters like Marco and Adam, I mean, did was that did you feel a little bit un, not uncomfortable but a bit annoyed with Adam's success with the band and the way that he 
went on and sort of became such a kind of global star in a way. Yes and no. The 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 yes is the um the way anybody that's been involved in, in something that's been kind of underground and cultish and been a sort of special secret that only a small group of people share and love, you know, when it then gets taken over by the mass media, you do feel a resentment. So that's so there's that, yes. Um and the other side of the coin is that that's always 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 what he wanted and he actually said right from the very beginning that's what he wanted so it would be churlish to um to say well he sold out or he you know did something other than what he ought to have done or whatever because actually he made it really long before they'd even played their first gig he was making it really clear that this is this is he wanted to kind of invent this persona, this Adam. His name's Stuart, and he wanted to turn himself into Adam, and he wanted to to be this person that played in enormous, you know, in big stadiums, and that all the little girls would be screaming and shouting like they did at the Beatles. And you know, he 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 he, um, yeah, you know. Had you had you felt a bit like a. Had you felt like a stepping stone in his kind of where he wanted to get to and um, or took some of the ideas that you uh-huh. thought there was kind of underlying things that he he sort of like borrowed a bit and thought just gave yeah. it a bit more of a commercial twist that you thought mm, he wouldn't be there without us? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I mean, he certainly had a number of different kind of muses and people that that offered inspiration and ideas and um and all the rest of it um yeah I don't know um in some ways I was more of a hindrance than a help because <laughs> <laughs> I was always the person that said no I think anyone listening to this who knows me well knows knows that I can be quite kind of critical and you know uh yeah yeah perhaps a perhaps um offer too many uh, too many criticisms but it's kind of out of love but yeah there's there's a number of different um there's a number I, of different because i remember hearing jane casey talking about eric's in liverpool and and they had quite a scene didn't they amazing array of people like holly johnson and bill drummond mm. and all that kind of and, they, and she was saying that they were these kind of quite broken individuals kind of wearing their neurosis on stage performing did was there a little bit of that with your gang did you sort of at the time or looking back think we were slightly yeah we we were all coming from a slightly not damaged background but a certain background that that we sort of glued ourselves together to get through it and some people have gone through it well better than others now yeah I suppose there's, there's always that old argument that art of any sort is some sort of um manifestation of of some sort of illness or neurosis or something. I mean, obviously with Adam, he did eventually get diagnosed as bipolar. Um, and um and and some of the sort of things that happened in, in the very early days before the the ants emerged when we were this this nameless band just sort of playing in um front rooms or bedrooms, whatever. I mean he he would kind of disappear for weeks, sometimes months, you know, and we and now now I know that 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 this was because he was having some sort of breakdown, or he also had anorexia, which is quite unusual in teenage boys. But mm. um, yeah, 
and he was hospitalized for all sorts of different reasons you know at various stages and then this is something that that stayed with stayed with him through his through his life and is still with him so yes um, at least there's more understanding of this now yes absolutely and hopefully he's, he seems a little bit more balanced i suppose um and yeah anyway so that's good i mean when, when you write a book like this and you you know the the, the kind of strength of it is kind of the honesty and your openness and telling your story. But with these characters, how does that then, when you put it out there into the world and you're thinking, blimey, most of these, apart from all those old men at that strip club are dead. I mean, most of them are still alive. How do you then think, oh, blimey, this could be interesting? Because I guess some you haven't spoke to for quite a few years. Um. I've, I've, yeah, there's some people that I've written about that I haven't seen or spoken to. Uh, the, I mean, a lot, a lot of the kind of the key central people I've retained some sort of relationship with. I mean, Andy Warren, I'm still, um, I still see and, and, um, and talk to regularly. And he was, he, he refused to read anything. <laughs> He's still refusing to read the book. And he certainly wouldn't read anything when it was being, you know, in process, yes. but he was on a practical level. He was really, really helpful, you know, uh, and is credited as uh, thus in the book. Um, he he gave me dates and confirmed things, or gave me alternatives, or gave me little snippets of information. And he went physically to his um, to his parents' house that his sister is now living in, and actually went went through all these kind of boxes. That when we when we stopped living together, we we divided up our our worldly goods into two contingents. And I I went with one half to Marco's parents' house in Harrow, and Andy went with the other half to his parents' house in Balham. But we kind of agreed that all of this stuff we would jointly own. We didn't kind of see how quite how that would work out in the future. But the way it worked out was that 40 years later, when I said I need this stuff, you know, he went and got it and dig, dug it all out. You know, so, yeah, we, we yeah, quite a lot of things, the sort of images that I use in the book and or just general information came from Andy yes. doing that for me. Marco, I had... had I haven't sort of seen Marco for a couple couple of years, but I mean, I sort of see him about once every five years or something. Jordan, I was close to. I'm yeah. very sad when he died. Um, I haven't seen anything. Of, I haven't seen Susie for since since those days. Not at all. Although I've seen Steve Severin, Stephen, um, once or twice. And is Jane yeah. and Jane, who was you mentioned in the book, you know, the journalist in Sounds. Jane Stark. Yeah. Yes. Funnily enough, I looked I, I looked her up yesterday. I can't kind of quite think why, um, but I was just curious. I th I know why. I just suddenly remembered that her name was Jane Jackman, and I hadn't remembered before. I couldn't remember what her surname was, so I'd been kind of googling Jane Suck, and and it just brings up the same old, you know, just yes. her sound um, reviews and things like that. But it didn't get many further. So so um, I don't know. And people just seem to say, oh, she's fallen off the planet. You know, we don't know where she is. But I'll tell you what, someone who has reappeared, and I've actually met up with him and um, and spent an evening with him, is Alex Ferguson, who people told me, I mean, Genesis Peorage told me that Alex was dead. You know, lots of people said he was dead because nobody's seen, nobody, he's not, he's disappeared off the internet and nobody had seen him for like 10 years or 15 years, whatever. Um, but he wasn't dead, he was just living in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so, Excellent. Um, 
I mean, uh, did and the one person, oh god, I was just going to say that the one person who who was absolutely adamant that he wasn't dead was Cozy Funny Tutti. So I contacted Cozy on um, on Twitter a year ago because I re-released the single, the I Confess single that I'd done on Industrial Records, which was created with Genesis Peorage and Alex Ferguson. And so um, Rough Trade, a sort of offshoot of Rough Trade, put this out. Of course, we were obviously we were trying to find Alex to, um, you know, to involve him in the process. And, uh, well, you know, I just contacted everybody and I put things on Facebook and Instagram and all over the place and just like, has anybody seen Alex Ferguson? And all these people like, like Mark P, you know, who'd been in the band ATV with him and various other people were just like, I haven't heard anything from him for like 20 years and we owe, you know, we have some royalties from him. I don't know why he's not collecting his money and he doesn't talk to anyone and he must be dead, you know. So <laughs> this is the general line from everybody. And then Cozy messaged me and said, I just got a birthday card from him. He's definitely not dead. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, oh, that's he's so... turned up the yes. blue. Yeah, yeah. So some people, some people I've kind of like, yeah, I've just written about quite freely. I've, I've tried not to worry too much about it. There's certain things, um, there's certain things I kind of changed or just, just, just suddenly felt a bit uncomfortable with and sort of pulled back a little bit on. But, but you know, yeah, but then other things. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think um, I'm not too worried about anything around the Sex Pistols or no, any of that. I, I think mean, it's, it's all out there, isn't it? I don't think that Steve Jones is going to sue me, is he, for mentioning him going to a VD clinic? You know, come on. No, he'll be fine. <laughs> I think I think it's interesting because most people, you know, now we see Steve with his acoustic guitar sitting in the toilet area, don't we? Bathroom singing Steely, Steely Dan songs, being quite sentimental, just not liking rock music at all anymore and he's he sounds like a really nice guy so I'm sure he's he's processed a lot of his childhood hasn't he let's face it so I mean yes sorry you were... oh no all I was going to say is is I feel slightly vindicated in being you know I I always felt that Steve and Paul were the were the heart of the band and you know I mean obviously Glenn was the the songwriter but um but somehow the sort of steep steam pull for me really really kind of um epitomized you know the spirit of the band and they were kind of they were often you know in the 1970s and subsequently in a lot lot of um stuff about sex pistols they were kind of painted as the sort of working class yobbos that were just manipulated by malcolm and all the rest of it uh, um but i think i think in recent years they've they've, they've kind of been i don't know vindicated or yes if, absolutely because, you know, when we all watched uh, The Royal We, with Nell and I, and there was a sort of lovely scene, isn't there, at the end where they're sort of leaving their flat and they're having that moment. Does, you know, when you were sort of revisiting your sort of end of your, you know, time at um, at the house, did it feel a little, did you have a bit of a moment reflecting like that? Or did it feel like that when you were starting to write this last little chapter and last little passage? Hmm. The chapter where I talk about actually closing the door of 69 for the very last time is actually the title story, which, which funnily enough, once I really sort of knuckled down to writing this book, which, which this was in 2015. I mean, there have been various bits and bobs written for magazines and things beforehand, but 2015 was the sort of start of it. And actually the first story that I wrote was that title story 69 exhibition road and it was very much with the house as a character 
um it's about the house and the house is almost like like um yeah it's it's almost like a living character and and yeah it did it did it felt it felt um interesting just recapturing that moment of of the of the walking out you know and the house has been emptied of all its tenants and it's just about to be converted into sort of luxury flats and uh yeah going out and pulling the door for the last time it was, uh, put, it, was it was an interesting moment to revisit yes it's it is often and also the the next band just quickly on rima rima you do weekend swingers don't you which is the next yes did you ever record any material um, which was released with that particular lineup, or was that a no, project? No, we were just very much. To- we were totally. Uh, Marco and I had just left Rima Rima. I was in the- I was doing this record with um, Genesis and Alex, and possibly talking about forming a band with them. The band that actually became Psychic TV, TV, which I did eventually join, but not at that time. Um, Andy had recently left the Ants and was um, playing with Beard in the monochrome set. And then we had these two other guys, Jay Strongman, who went on to become a famous DJ. Yeah. Kisser, warehouse parties, all the rest. And Paul Stahl, what's happened to him actually? Paul Peanuts. Anyway, so so we five were just friends who decided to do something together. And I think with all the sort of, especially with the breakup of Rima Rima and all the kind of seriousness around that, it just felt absolutely lovely to be doing something that was just purely for fun. So there was no intention for this to be a proper serious band. And um, yeah, no, no intention to record anything or do anything other than just play fun cover versions in clubs. <laughs> yes, this is yeah, amazing. It, I mean, and it kind of morphed into the L trains, which was a sort of that was that was like um, yeah, the lineup minus minus Marco and Andy, and with a guy called Skid um, playing on bass. So yeah, and then it did become a, a proper group that tried to do things but um it was it was in in many ways not as uh not as interesting because because the very peculiar lineup you know with 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 marco's kind of quite you know heavy wild guitar on top of this sort of rockabilly sound um and with andy on bass a classic rickenbacker you know heavy strong good bass lines yeah gave it a really specific sound yeah there might be Recordings from Gossips, Billy's, from Gaz's Rocking Blues Club. I don't know. Right. Um, Next, yeah, yes. We didn't do anything formally. I have to say, on with the book, I just think the photographs, because often there's been a real lack of good photographs from, especially UK punk places, you know, waves, you know, New York has, you know, like CBGBs and Max's Kansas City in the Mud Club, and you just look at them, and someone, obviously, there was a lot of good photographers around at that time, whereas you know there's there's a real lack but your book does have some beautiful images in it and some great you know like everyone's so beautiful aren't they everyone is so beautiful oh well we but we're all like 20 you know I mean the the boys in Rima Rima were um yeah they they were like they were about 19 or 20 I was a bit older 23 that that early band that became the ants the monochrome set Andy and Beard had just left school I mean they were 18 you know I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. it's 
it's, it's but so, you must be so, you must be so pleased with the book it does it does look it does look uh, lovely I'm really happy with it I mean I must just just do a great big enormous thank you to Strange Attractor Press yes. publisher they've just been absolutely um so great at communicating and um and just been so brilliant about everything around kind of quality and you know um all of that kind of stuff and yeah there's some sort of proper photos quite a few I'd say I'd say by um quite a lot of them by this people like Ted Polhemus um who's very kindly let me use his photos um I've used a couple of photos by Simon Barker right the infamous Bromley contingent and uh, flatmate of Jordan's he he let me use a couple of his um photos from his fantastic book Punk's Dead um yeah yeah and then actually an awful lot of the photographs as well are just my um slightly dodgy you know Polaroids or um which are just just sort of just started then really Polaroid cameras um or I had this thing a, a kind of Kodak brownie right yes a classic you know and you did those little classic little square photos and you had to pay extra for black and white film so but yeah. it's kind of just kind of briefly because I know we're all going at three but it is great to get another side of music from especially a, a woman's perspective as well from because I noticed that Mickey from Lush has just bought her book out and again it's like up to until quite recently, it's always just been about the men, hasn't it? And the boys and the band. And so it's kind of interesting hearing quite a different side of all this from a woman's point of view. Well, I, I've, I've, I found it kind of quite odd, really, that, that for me, punk was so much about, you know, the the women. I mean, you know, Vivian Westwood and Jordan and then, you know, Susie and the, the Slits and Gay Advert. I don't know. Then there was loads of women around and involved in doing things. We had Jeanette working at Acme Attractions and also been working as a photographer. Yes. There were so many women. And yet the, the, all of these books came out for years and years celebrating punk and it'd be just like one picture of the the clash and the damned and the lurkers and you know all <laughs> great. yeah that's a sex pistols you know on and on and on of course yeah they're, they're all great and good to be documented but it was almost like for for quite a while yes the 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 female involvement was either just just brushed past very lightly or not even mentioned at all Yes, I think the, the those greatest hits compilations, punk's greatest hits, were mostly quite they're quite sort of straightforward rock and roll, weren't they? Really, so you know, and that was very blokey and stuff. So um, it's it's never yeah. the interesting stuff. So it's quite interesting. But well, yeah. I also I'm very aware. I did a reading with um, Dave Bob, drummer in the Ants, and Bow Wow Wow. Uh, we 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 did an event together a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's, he's written a book called Mud Sharks, which is a novel, but, but a kind of fictionalised version of his own autobiography. But his kind of account of, 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 of punk and playing in bands and things, it just, it just, it's just coming from such a different perspective. And it's not like that one or other of us is right or wrong, or this one's the truth and this one's the fantasy, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Completely just coming from a completely different perspective and with a with completely different you know yeah kind of kind of vibe really I mean I I'm I suppose unashamedly arty and coming from that 
I didn't go to art school, but but I'm coming from from that kind of background. Yes, my interest is in I've, I've got really fascinated with that New York punk scene, and again, it's yeah. really different to the UK punk scene. It's just very mm -hmm. like it's much more gay. It's much more. I mean, there's a lot more drugs and heroin, <laughs> but but there's kind of psychobilly. There's drag artists. There's Andy Warhol. There's Basquiat. You know, there's there's yeah. There's just a lot of different people. You know, Lee Black Childers and all that bunch. And it's like, okay, that's quite a different scene, isn't it? It's not Sham sixty nine shouting about the kids being no. But that that was how that was the early scene though, and that's one of the things that I felt was really important to tell that story. Yes. Um, how how strong the relationship between the gay clubs and disco and punk um, really was, because a lot of that has been written out of history. Um, or if people do mention clubs like Louise's, they just sort of mention by the by that, oh, punks took over this kind of lesbian supper club. But it wasn't like that. You know, it was a, it was a gay environment that invited in um, other, other things. And, yes. You know, they all happily kind of, mixed and you know formed new alliances and then sort of after I mean once once Bill Grundy happened and you had the kind of the whole and then and then punk just became this sort of word that, that the tabloids threw around my front and center and then there was the sort of whole shift into what we could call the kind of tower block punk kind of mentality <laughs> and it's just it's just something different and it's something that 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 yeah, it's yes. a whole lot of thing, really. It's not not like that. That's wrong or anything, but it was something that didn't really interest me, you know. And that's how when things like Rumorima started, it was very much that 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 all of us as people that have been involved in the original kind of um, you know the nineteen seventy six punk scene, if you want to call it that, the, the, that didn't even have the name punk at the time, but just this alternative thing of going to gay clubs and, and really liking disco music but also being really interested in the emergence of 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 the sex pistols and you know all of that stuff that was going on um by the time it by the time it got to you know Sid Vicious being being brought in to replace Glenn and and the whole of the the whole of the kind of gobbing and moshing sort of thing uh yeah we went we were just really keen to do something else which is why Rimarima reformed and why other things like human league and you know yeah various other bands around the country were forming kind of in in um kind of in reaction to or antithesis to what what punk had become we just wanted some just really really wanted to do something different yes look dorothy <laughs> this has been amazing actually i've got to go at three and you've got to go as well sorry about that there we are. It's okay. We've timed it well. We have timed it. Yeah. We have yeah. to the minute. Sign Exhibition Road out on Stranger Tractor, and it's going into um, it. it it's at advanced copies are available from Stranger Tractor at the moment, but it goes into general distribution worldwide and via bookshops and Amazon from January 2023. So. Amazing. It is amazing. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you, as always, to Dorothy Max Pryor for giving me the time for that interview. The uh, book titled 69 Exhibition Road is, as you said, available very soon, probably beginning of 2023. Stranger Tractor Press. That's it. I know that's all you need to worry, worry about. If you want to worry, if you don't, then fine. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. 
And all these have been archived interviews, that's what I mean. By, and they are available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. I know, aren't you lucky? Anyway, have a great week, stay safe.